3: Comics, movie stars, hit singles, and some toys. It's trivia and dirty jokes. An evening with, with the boys. Once is never good enough for something so fantastic. fantastic. So here's another Gilbert and Frank's. Here's another Gilbert and Frank's. Here's another Gilbert and Frank's. Gilbert and Franks. Colossal classic.
4: Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co host Frank Santo Padre. We're coming to you through Starburns Audio, the home of the comedy podcast, including Harmontown, the Koi Pond, and many others. Check out starburnsaudio.com. We're excited to welcome two guests to the show this week. Howard Storm is a comedian, actor, writer, producer, and a distinguished director of dozens of popular television shows, including Rhoda, Fernwood Tonight, Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy, Taxi, Too Close for Comfort, Perfect Strangers, Mr. Belvedere, Uh (laughs) uh-oh, Al, Head of the Class, and Everybody Loves Raymond, just to name a few. As an actor, he's appeared in Love American Style, Sanford and Son, Duckman, I appeared in that too, and the film Take the Money and Run, American Hot Wax, Tunnel Vision, and of course the beloved movie that helped inspire this very program, Broadway Danny Rose. He's worked with many showbiz lessons, to name Uh, he's worked with too many showbiz legends to name but here's five just for fun Don Rickles, Lucille Ball Red Fox, Steve Martin and Frank Sinatra his brand new memoir is called The Imperfect Stone*, from Henry Street to Hollywood and is filled with great stories, many of them even true his co-author, Steve Stolyer, is making his third visit to the show, and we still haven't gotten over his mesmerizing impressions of Grady Sutton and Nat Perry. He's a writer, actor, and author who has written episodes of murder, she wrote. Simon and Simon, the new WR. The new WKRP in Cincinnati and Sliders, among others. He's written and produced documentaries about John Lennon, Elvis Presley, and most importantly, Shemp Howard. He's also the author of Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House, about his professional and personal relationship with the legendary Groucho Marx. I never met Steve Stolzner. <laughs> Please welcome to the show Howard Storm and Steve Stonia Boys, boys.
3: I thought we should... You and I could recreate the mirror scene from Duck Soup for the radio because, you see, <laughs> nothing is spoken... It's all visual, so people would be looking at their radios and saying, I can't tell them apart."
0: <laughs> <laughs> welcome back, Stephen. Good night, folks. And welcome thank to you. the show, Howard.
5: Well, thank you. Yes. Nice to be here.
0: Howard, we were having some technical difficulties here on on our end, but before we got it solved, you were telling us a great story about uh, directing the show "Daddy Dearest," starring Richard Lewis and Don Rickles. Oh, a show I, I attended a taping of, by the way. Oh yes, in L.A. <laughs> I'm sure you directed that episode since you directed well, I d- all. Of I
5: directed them. all of them. Yeah.
0: What was the What was the Rickles story? Well, it's worth
5: hearing. It was Halloween, and Rickles. Uh, walked around the place he always wore those uh, jumpsuits you know a jacket and and running pants. Oh, like a jogging suit yeah so he pulled yeah. his pants out and he said Richard Richard come say hello to Eddie I dressed him up for Halloween and Richard wouldn't go near him Richard was blinking away you know and just nervous and finally he said Howie Come over, say hello to Eddie. I dressed him up for Halloween. And he pulled his <laughs> pants out, and I looked down, and I said, Don, how'd you find such a small hat? <laughs> and he now, from then on, he called me the Jew Dwarf director.
0: The Jew Dwarf.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Which must have been an honor coming from Don. Rickles. Yes, yeah. <laughs>
0: I love this too uh, Howard that, that a principal said to you that you were uh, to, that said to your dad because you come from a showbiz family yeah your dad was in vaudeville right Well we'll get to it in a second who your dad was and, and who he replaced which is fascinating but a principal sat him down a school principal and said that he was t- you were too dumb to be anything but an actor yeah,
5: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at 14 in those days unbelievable they quit school and went to work you know and to help the family. And the principal called him to his office and said, you're too dumb to be anything but an actor. So I've arranged an audition for you with a friend of mine named Gus Edwards. And Gus Edwards was the producer of a show called School Days with the Crazy Kids. And it consisted of G- Yeah uh, Georgie Jessel, Eddie Cantor, uh, Walter Winchell. Fanny Bryce, and Burt Gordon.
0: The Mad Russian.
5: Yes. And my yes. father repla- did the second company, uh, and he did the Bert Gordon role in, in the Amazing. company.
0: Uh, was Groucho involved in,
6: uh, at, at any point with that group?
5: No, no. He
6: wasn't in that group, but he was with Gus Edwards for I part of his vaudeville Edwards. days. Because
4: I heard school days... Had the Marx Brothers? Really? Well,
6: they did fun in high school as a one of their vaudeville shows. Uh, but I know that I think Groucho sang in Gus Edwards' review when he was a little kid.
0: Because they started and Walter as- Winchell was a tap dancer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Originally Jeez.
4: was a tap
5: dancer. Amazing. Yeah.
4: And and we were talking. We were both fascinated by that. You and your father were among all those guys from Murder Incorporated, the Jewish mob.
5: Yes, yeah. Well, he was raised with Lepke and Garashapiro, um, Kidrappa. Uh, he was; they were his neighbors. You know, and they went to school together. As a matter of fact, <laughs> my father, when he came to this country, uh, his mother had lost two sons, one at birth and one a year old. And so the rabbi said to my mother, if you want this child to live a long life, name him Zeta, which his grandfather uh, means grandpa Zeta in, in Yiddish. Yiddish. Yeah. So he went to school with the name Zeta Sloboda. <laughs>
0: Zeta Sloboda <Yeah>, the f- <laughs> and they called him what Slobo?
5: Yes they did
0: yeah, and yeah. the
5: first day he got there he changed his name to Jack <laughs> tough as- neighborhood It became Jack Sloboda and he told me a story about the depression he was selling ties on the street and he went up to see Lepke and Lepke said how many ties you have Slobo? And he said, 20. He said, How many are they?" He said, A dollar each. He said, Here's 20 bucks. I'll take them all.
0: Louis Lepke, yeah. the famous Jewish Buck, mobster. Buchhalter was that his girl? last name? Lepke yeah.
5: Buchalter went to the electric chair.
0: That was after I he knew, a, yeah. knew your father. Yes! Wow! 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 And your dad replaced. Tell, tell us, uh, Steve. Tell us who the uh, our listeners should know by now. But tell us who the uh, who Bert Gordon was, the famous oh, Mad Russian. Well,
5: Bert Gordon was on the Eddie Cantor show as the Mad Russian.
0: Right, uh, right, right.
5: I remember one line as a kid watching it. He introduced the Mad Russian to Herbert Marshall, and Russian said, "My dear Mister Marshmallow." It's nice <laughs> to meet you.
6: Because he was always mangling English.
5: He right? mangled, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also Al Kelly, who was the master of the double talk, was at your parents' wedding? He was the
5: best man.
0: Hmm. The best man. Oh! oh. <laughs> That's also fun. Yeah.
5: My, fa- <laughs> my father knew Al right from the beginning, you know, and they were buddies. And he... Uh, well, you know, best man, actually, my father married my mother in City Hall, and he had Al come as a, uh, with him to be a, a witness. Al Kalish was, that was his, his real, real name.
0: name. I love that. How did you guys meet in the first place? We have, we've had Steve on the show before. Uh, Steve's been with us twice to talk about his relationship with Groucho and, and all other things. Howard, but how, actually, how did you guys hook up?
6: It's an interesting story. Howard propositioned me in a restroom. at really? Was it a 76 <laughs> station or Same a Chevron Gildenheim station? <laughs> I'm not sure. The it was 70, I think it was 76 station. And, uh, uh-huh. no, all seriousness aside, uh, we are both members of a group called Yarmie's Army,
0: Yarmy's army oh,
6: named tell us. after Dick yeah. Yarmy, who was Don Adams' brother, and uh, he was
5: a nice brother.
6: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I,
0: I gathered that from your book, Howard. <laughs> and, uh,
5: and then I was we'll get, introduced we'll to, to
6: Howard from by uh, Mark Evanier, who has also been on your program. Oh, we love Mark. Yeah. And uh, Howard deemed me worthy of inclusion, and it's nice hanging out with all these old guys because they call me kid. <laughs> and uh, I just turned 65, so it's nice that someone calls me that. But that's because the other hey, people are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s in some cases.
0: Yeah, and, you, you are the junior and
4: member. And, and starting from the beginning of Yarmie's Army till now, who are some of the people?
0: Who were the founding now? members? Oh,
5: originally, it was very heavy-duty guys. It was Harvey Korman. Uh, oh. um,
0: Tim Conway. T- Tim
5: Conway, Tom Poston, Louis Nye. Wow. Howie Pat McCormick. Morris, Pat, Pat, McC- M- Pat, McCormick. Pat, McCormick,
0: a name not unfamiliar Chuck to the show.
5: Oh. Ch- well, Chuck McCann, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, Riley, Jack I Riley, I would imagine. Was in the- uh, sure. Pat Riley, Harrington, Riley would interview McCormick. He would. Uh, What's that? He would interview McCormick, and okay. this was the interview, uh, Mister. Uh, I understand you're you're a doctor. That's right. And I understand that you're a medical historian. Yes, I am. And can you tell me what the worst disease of mankind is? Without a doubt, the bubonic plague. And Riley said to him, well, how do you know if you've got it? He said, when a monk throws your body on an ox cart, you know you got it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're we're, we're going to ask you to tell any Pat McCormick stories that you can remember periodically through the show hour. Okay, but I I just want to get back to this is this is very interesting. I mean your your dad's your dad's career in show business. He started in vaudeville. He moved to burlesque. Right. And then what happened? He, he became kind of a—he took a different do- a job in the business eventually. And then, yeah,
5: then he left the business, and he, he worked for BMI. Uh, what happened is he had a young man who wanted to be in show business, and my father was very nice to him. The guy became a lawyer and became the lawyer for BMI. So he called my father and said, you work in the Catskills, you can cover all the hotels and sign them up. So my father did that, and then he asked him to sign them up for the nightclubs in New York. And he traveled all over the country signing people up to BMI, uh, which was like ASCAP.
0: I see. Yeah and he eventually became a social director in the Catskills he was
5: yeah he did that when i was 9 and 10 years old every summer we went we went to the Catskills for like from the end of may to labor day
0: and how did you get introduced to the business
5: well i wanted to be a comic at the age of 2 as soon as you did because of my father and my father would teach me timing when I was about 8 or 9, by holding my sleeve. As the laugh subsided, he let go of my sleeve, and I would set up the next joke. And then he would do the punchline, hold my sleeve. When the laugh subsided, he let go.
0: Uh, Gilbert loved that, that.
5: That must have helped you tremendously in TV. Well, yeah. With the studio audience. Well, I learned timing, you know, from that. Yeah. And what he did once, he said to me one night, you're on your own. And the laugh subsided, but it didn't subside enough. And I got nervous and I set up the next line. And as we're walking off stage, he said to me, you stupid son of a bitch, you stepped all over the joke. <laughs> <laughs>
6: wow. And that led to years of psychotherapy. No,
5: what it did was I loved it because it told me that he thought of me as his partner. You know what I mean? He, he was treating yeah. me like an equal by yelling at me. I loved it. Yeah.
4: So your father, as opposed to, like we always ask, how did your parents feel about you going into the business? Your father really brought you in and helped you out.
5: Yes, until, this is interesting, I did a double. And my partner was drafted into the Marines during the Korean War. And my father said to me, what are you going to do now? And I said, I'm going to do a single. And he said, who do you think you are, Jan Murray? <laughs>
6: <laughs> Didn't he say you had to have something to fall back on? Yeah, he, he had said, no if faith you're to do you. a
5: single, you need, thank you, you need something to fall back on, tap dance or play an instrument. <laughs> so I studied saxophone. I was the worst saxophone player that ever lived. I tried yeah, Steve, to learn tap listen, dancing. I was the worst tap dancer. I couldn't Terrible do any tap but,
0: <laughs> Steve, you listen to the podcast. Did you happen to hear our our, our interview with Alan Alda? Uh, no,
5: but I know that Alan's father was was uh, the he was called the um, uh, the juvenile. He, That's where I was headed. In, in burlesque. Yeah. And he worked Robert with my Alda. father. Robert Alder. Robert Alder worked with my father at a theater called the People's Theater on the Bowery in those days. And I used to go from school, after school, I'd go at, on matinees and run to see the show and sit in the box seats and wait to be introduced. <laughs>
0: I bring it up because because Alan told us uh, something about his childhood, yeah, and uh, how the strippers in the show would sort of took a liking to him, right? And that happened to you as well. Exactly, you guys seem, seem to have had similar childhoods. Yes,
5: and uh, they actually made me a striptease outfit. A G string, <laughs> yeah. I had a G string and and pasties, and I would do a striptease takeoff of, a, you know, of them doing the striptease.
0: And how old were you then?
5: I was about eight or nine.
0: <laughs> Have you and Alan ever gotten together and talked
5: about this? I talked to him a little bit about it once at Gene Reynolds' house.
0: I see. You know, and yeah. I also the similarities sent him. Are
5: interesting. I sent him. I found a. Uh, a, a, I guess an ad for the People's Theater with mm-hmm. my father's name and Robert Alder and I sent a copy to him. But he never seemed to relate to it, you know, in terms...
0: That's interesting.
4: Now, you, you said something that, that stuck with me about like the first time you were directing... It's And uh, you felt like you had to give notes. Yes. Because, yeah, you had it <laughs> And I, I've, I've been with directors like that and loads of people. They, they have to justify their position by putting in
5: notes. Exactly. Exactly. And so it was Doc. I was doing Doc with Barnard bon Hughes oh, sure. and Mary Elizabeth uh, Wilson.
0: Well, yeah, and And Mary
5: Wicks. And Mary Wicks, who every time she entered the room where Doc was, she'd ask me why she was going in there. And 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 at one point, um, Bernard Bernard said to her, "Because if you don't come in, Mary, I'll be talking to myself." <laughs>
0: yeah. Mary Wicks was one of those actresses that seemed like she was seventy when she was thirty. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
4: And but you said you gave them the notes. It was just you felt pressure. Yes. Like I gotta do yeah, something. Yeah, I'm
5: the director, so I should do that. And I drove home so upset with myself. You know, thinking, why did I do that? It was just such a phony thing to do. You know, I mean, I gave them notes that had nothing to do with anything. I just found a reason to give notes. And I promised myself I would never do that again. And I never did. You know, I I only...
4: Yeah, because... I've gotten notes like that where they just feel like uh, you know justifying their position. Right. I gotta, I gotta say something.
5: Right. Right. It's
6: like an editor that feels like if he doesn't hand the pages back covered in red ink, they'll think he's not doing his job, even if it doesn't yeah. it need all that stuff. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Point.
4: And and the funny thing about that is when you were doing Mark and Mindy it seemed like the network went nutty with notes and and new ideas that were idiotic yes
5: because robin would say things and they would panic he once said oh bullpucky and <laughs> and all of a sudden we got a call from new york you can't say bullpucky and there were 3 of us <laughs> Three of us on the phone with the guy. We drove him nuts. We said, how about feline p- Pucky? And he said, no. Well, what about uh, dog Pucky? And we kept going and going until finally we cornered him and he agreed to let us say bull Pucky.
6: Wasn't, oh, <laughs> and, and, and bovine residue. Was that the one that...
5: Uh, Bova, oh, that's what it was. That's we came up. We <laughs> said to him, how about bovine residue? And he said, oh, and, okay.
4: <laughs> and then at one point they said, we need more tits and ass.
5: Yes. On more And, and they brought in Raquel Welsh.
0: Uh-oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's in the book. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> she,
5: she was sitting on my right the two women that played her lieutenants were on her right. We read for an hour. It was a two, two-parter. And at the end of the show, everybody left but Raquel, Gary Marshall, and the exec producer, me, Robin, and Pam. And we always would do this. We'd say to the star, the guest star, is there any way we can help you? Is there any Do you have any questions? So... We said, Do you have any questions? She said, Yes. Who are the girls that are gonna play my lieutenants? And I said to the two girls that read with you. And she said, Oh, I didn't notice them.
4: Oh, jeez. <laughs> and and one of them was Deborah Joe Fonger, right. who I remember fondly yes.
0: as a centerfold. She
5: was gorgeous. She was. Yes. About
0: what was this craziness about? She wanted them on dog leashes or something. Oh yes. Or as she, who does not?
5: She wanted. Yes. She want. She said, "I don't like the opening. They can't come in before me." And I, we said to her, well, Raquel. If they come in after you, they're going to pull the eye. They're going to distract. They have to come in before you, and it's perfect. One comes downstage left, one comes downstage right, and then they frame you when you enter. No, they can't come in before me. And so she said, well, what if I bring them in on dog leashes? (laughs) <laughs> she came up <laughs> <off> with dog <laughs> leashes,
4: So and she wanted them wearing dog masks. Yes, I heard. Yes. Yeah.
5: And then she had her, <laughs> she she had her costume made by Bob, Mac, Bob Mackey. $50,000. Uh-huh. Hmm. And then she suggested that we paint the entire set the color of her costume. It was. Wow. I mean, it was bizarre. That's why
0: you won't hear Raquel Welch on this podcast. It was bizarre. On this show. And,
4: and I, I mean, I imagine, because both the girls were hot-looking girls oh, yeah. who were with Raquel. Yeah. And I'm sure she didn't want... I'm sure the dog masks was a way that she wouldn't be upstage exactly, by course, two hot-looking exactly. girls.
5: In fact, she was standing backstage with... Um, the dancer who had done, uh, Vicki Fredericks, who had done dancing on Broadway, the lead. And she was a gypsy, tough, you know. And Raquel said to her, where's the other chick? And she said to her, hey, F-face, that woman has a name, and I suggest you learn it. (laughs) <laughs>
4: oh, thank you wow. for not saying
6: fuckface, by the way, because you can't say fuckface on their podcast, so That's you have right. to look oh, for yes, alternatives. yes, you can.
4: Yeah, because, you know, with me, I get very offended yeah. very <laughs> easily. Yeah, yeah. Be, feel
0: free to speak freely, Howard. I, I, We'd come back to Mark and Mindy, but I want to I wanna tell one of the other stories about your childhood. I, you, obviously, you said you were in, in love with show business from the age of two, and you and a friend, you would sneak into Broadway theaters because I want you to tell that great Betty Garrett story. Oh, yeah, story yeah. What happened? At the Winter Garden.
5: We would go up to Broadway on Saturday, and we would sneak in with the crowd after the ma- after the break, you know. Intermission. So we'd see yeah intermission. intermission. Yeah. So we'd see the second act of every play. We never saw a first act. So, <laughs> so I said to him, "You know what? We're going to see a first act because I'm going to jimmy a door and get us in." So I jimmied the backstage door of um, the winter garden. And when you walk into that door, you're right there, you're backstage. And we're standing there and all these people are running around trying to fix things. And a guy says to us, what are you doing here? And I look and I see a picture of Betty Garrett and her name. So I said, we're here to see Betty Garrett. He grabs us both by our ears and walks (laughs) us. (laughs) He walks us to Betty Garrett's door, knocks on the door. She says, yes. He says, Miss Garrett, I have two boys out here that claim to have an appointment with you. And she said, oh, yes, I'm expecting them. <laughs>
4: How nice. <laughs> oh, she Love was great.
5: So we went in. She said, what's going on? We said, we never saw a whole show. We want to see a whole show. She said, OK, you come back next Saturday. There'll be tickets here for you. And then come back and... and and see me. So we go next Saturday. Sure enough, we have tickets. We see the whole show. We go back. She, we walk her back home. She was living in an apartment on 8th Avenue and I think 53rd or 54th. We go to her apartment. Her mother is there. Her mother pours pineapple juice for us out of a pitcher with glasses that matched. I never saw that in my life. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, we, we had glass, jelly glasses, you know, or your side candle glasses, you know. We, we never had a, a real glass. So she poured this, and I was, I was just in shock, and um, we became friends. We, uh, she did a radio show and we said, will you mention our name? She said, I'll try. And I remember listening at home and they asked her about who was in the cast. And she mentioned Jules Munchen, uh, Tommy Callow- Galloway and Howie Storm, and Marty Nedboy. <laughs> and we were <laughs> I awesome. went nuts, you know. She t- and said you, years name. later,
0: when you came to direct her in Laverne and Shirley, you reminded oh, her well, of this. Oh, well, yeah, that's she was, what happened.
5: She, uh, yeah. uh, Gary says to me, we bring in a woman to play the uh, landlady. I said, who are you bringing in? He said, Betty Garrett. So I don't say a word. I hadn't seen her in 20 years. So I wait, she shows up, I walk up to her, I said, Miss Garrett, do you remember a kid named Howie Sobel? She looks at me and says, Oh my God, that's you. What are you doing here? I said, I'm the director. <laughs>
2: <Wow>. <laughs> what a great story. Wow. I love that.
4: Yeah. And and Excuse me for obsessing on Raquel Welch, <laughs> but she, I heard she treated Pam Dauber oh, yeah. like she didn't exist. Exactly,
5: yeah. And, and what happened was it started with Robin trying to explain to Raquel that the the opening worked, the introduction. Uh, you know he's trying to The way to tell- it was written. Yeah, the way it was written, and Pam is standing off to the side, and she says, "Raquel, you know he's right." And Raquel did one of these, "Honey, please," and she stepped in front of Pam, and blocked her out. And Pam, I've never seen Pam do this. Went to the back of her head with a fist and went like she was going to hit her in the <laughs> back of the head. Wow! And every time, wow. every time came <laughs> Pam came on stage, she'd walk up behind Raquel and pick up a fist mm. and go, like she was gonna knock her head off. Didn't you
6: say that and Pam Pam doesn't get as much credit as she deserves?
5: Yeah, she for... never did. I thought she she was amazing. She, I mean, she would had to wait Robin out. He would do fifteen minutes of nothing to do with the show, you know, and she'd have to find a way to get back in and get him back on track
0: be that straight man. And, you you compared to Bud Abbott in the book. Yes. It's just great high praise.
5: Yeah.
4: Cuz I I always thought like uh if you really watch Abbott and Costello, Abbott's the real funny.
5: One. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's the, What's the he, matter with you? He's the control. Get here. I mean, without him you don't have a show. You know? I mean, it's it, it, he was the, he was the the perfect straight man. Mhm.
0: Yeah, we think straight men are underrated.
5: <laughs> they are.
4: And I mean, there are lines Abbott would say that weren't joke lines that would make me crack up. Yeah.
0: Like, put your hands down?
4: <laughs> put your hands down. Or, in who's on first? Yeah. Costello says, you know, I'm a good catcher myself. And he goes, so they tell me. <laughs> th- that fucking
5: killed yeah, me. He was great. He was He was the best. You know, he and Dean, <laughs> Who else? Dean Martin and Abbott, I thought were the best yeah, straight men yeah, I've ever also seen. Also great.
4: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this.
0: Who, who else did you see in those days uh Howie when you were sneaking into to, to theaters I mean I know you saw a 15 year old Jerry Lewis perform pantomime yeah
5: wow yeah. he was doing uh he he was doing his record act you know
6: lip syncing yeah 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 and I yeah. saw
5: Alan King when he was 17 in the catco wow.
6: Alan King was never 17 yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey,
5: yes You're right he was yes. born
6: at about 45
5: I think. And he was sensational. I was so impressed with him, you know? He was so solid at 17 years old. Alan amazing.
0: King. I'm trying to picture Alan King as a 17 year old comic. Yeah,
4: it's, it's just like that actress you were talking about who was never young
0: Mary Wicks. Yeah, right, Wicks. yeah. Alan King, was,
4: Alan King was born an old Jew, <laughs> an old complaining. <laughs> A crutching,
5: a crutching (laughs) Jew. Yes, yes.
0: (laughs) So you and your partner, Lou Alexander, eventually formed a a comedy team. We did, yeah. That that performed under different names. And when Lou, as you said before, when Lou got drafted, you you became a single. Yes.
5: Uh, We had planned when we were, we met at 14. And we planned to do an act together when we got out of high school. And I graduated high school, and I left the next day for Florida to team up with him. And we we didn't have an act, but we were partners. (laughs) And and, a minor detail. That's right. And my my father was booked was asked to work a club in Boston called the French Village, and he didn't want to work it. So we talked him into taking us. And we didn't have any material. So we took all the burlesque sketches that my father did and his father did, and we went out. One of the pieces we did was, I'm a veterinarian and he's a a farmer. And he says to me, my mule is sick. I said, not a problem. Take this hose, put it down the mule's esophagus. You take this talcum powder. Pour it down the the hose. Mm. Then you blow into the hose to make sure the powder goes evenly throughout the mule's body. And that mule will be fit as a fiddle. He walks off stage, and I stall. Tell the audience, "You watch that mule; will be fine." And you hear backstage, "Bang! Crash!" He comes back; his hair is all messed up, powder all over his face. I said, "What happened?" He said, "The mule blew first." Hmm. <laughs> wasn't it? Wasn't was wasn't Lou's
6: father partly responsible for the loss of your virginity in Florida?
5: Oh, yes. <laughs>
0: oh, I'm glad you brought that up, Steve. I, okay, I'm glad, this I have to I'm hear. I'm glad
5: my mother's dead because she would go nuts.
0: <laughs> well, go
6: ahead and tell the folks at home what happened. It's in the book. <laughs> Steve's
0: doing my job. I love it.
5: <laughs> I, I was 14. And there was a girl from Canada, a 21-year-old girl, who wanted to be a striptease dancer. And Lou's father was teaching her how to strip. And we were in the room with Lou's father's mistress, Linda, who was 31, and Pat, the 21-year-old. And all of a sudden, I don't know why, but Pat and I start to wrestle. And I get an erection <laughs> <laughs> and, and the As next thing do. I know, I'm screwing her. Okay? <laughs> I'm fourteen. Now Linda says, I wish Jojo was here. I said, Why? She says, Because I'm hot. So I said So I said to her, I'll do it. And she said, okay. And I went into the room, closed the door, and I <laughs> I made love to her. And she scared the <laughs> hell out of me because I, I didn't know that you scream and you yell, you pull someone's hair, you scratch their back. <laughs> <and> I, <laughs> I was. <laughs> so you oh had God. two
6: in one night.
5: Yeah.
0: <laughs> How old were you, Howard?
6: <laughs> 14. <laughs>
0: Fourteen. Yeah. So it was
5: What's all do- it was
6: all downhill after that. <laughs> yeah. How do you top that?
0: <laughs> and, so and- so
4: you didn't know about all the other stuff—the screaming and
5: <laughs> no, I had no idea that women a woman would scream. The, f- the first one didn't. The second one was screeching and scratching me, and I was what the hell? Is Obviously, your
6: technique had improved in the five minutes between the women.
5: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> Howard, you're my new hero. Tell tell me why.
4: <laughs> I feel like I feel like I can end the show now because I don't know anything that's
0: going to top that. <laughs> Nothing could top it. Uh, Tell us why Red Buttons and Jan Murray and Joey Bishop came to see your act with Lou.
5: Well, because we were doing burlesque sketches, and word got around these two 18-year-old, 19-year-old kids were doing burlesque, and nobody, you know, they couldn't imagine. We were working a club on 7th Street uh, and Collins Avenue, and... We did a two o'clock in the morning show. We did three shows. And these guys would come at two in the morning to watch us work. And, you know, it was amazing. And that's how we got to know them. We got to know Jan and uh, Joey, which was very difficult. (laughs) Oh,
4: nobody liked Joey Bishop. You don't know how many guests we've had on. And the two that they hated... Were Joey Bishop and Danny Kay? Yeah,
5: yeah, it's that's right. And because they were impossible people, they were rude. They were disrespectful. You know, where Jan was a sweet man. You know, he mm-hmm. made you feel like an equal. Red Buttons the hear. same. In fact, we went to see Red Buttons act, and when the bill came, we didn't have enough money for a tip, so we went backstage and borrowed ten bucks. From Red, and he said to the guy that was writing his act at the time, I'll never see those kids again. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and the next day we came back with the 10 bucks. You know,
0: nice, nice, that's a Aww. nice outcome. What was the Phil Foster story? He accused you of stealing stuff from his act.
5: Oh, oh, yeah, I, I was uh, somebody when I started a single, another comic, a guy named. <clears throat> I can't think of his name now. Anyway, he gave me a routine, and it was the blind date, which was Phil uh-huh. Foster's, and it worked great. <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: Phil Foster also I, from I did R- it California, very well. To our listeners. <laughs> you did it well. Yeah. You did his bit well. Yeah.
5: <laughs> I, I, I had no idea it was Phil's. You know, I mean, I just... A guy gave me a piece of material, and I did it. So I'm working as stagecoach in Jersey and Phil Foster is there with his manager. <clears throat> and I come off stage, and Phil says to me, either you're very stupid or you got a lot of nerve. I said, what do you mean? He said, you did seven minutes of my act. I said, what? He said, the blind date, that's mine. I said, I, I didn't know that. Somebody gave it to me. He said, you know, everybody's doing it. It's okay. Do it. Hmm. Wasn't that, wow. sweet? that was nice oh, of him. Oh,
4: geez. Yeah,
0: he was a mensch.
5: He was Phil,
4: and
0: and I I
4: heard a story. I hope I got this straight. Your father had a partner, and they were waiting to go on, and the team before them did their mm-hmm. act.
5: How do you know that story?
4: It was in your book. Oh. <laughs>
6: you see, we wrote this book, Howard. It's got all these stories you in mean,
5: it. You mean, <laughs> Gilbert, you read the book?
6: Yeah, we both <laughs> read the book. they the <laughs> ones. Cover <to>
4: cover. <laughs> it's not like I was there. I mean.
5: <laughs> what happened was, uh, in Boston, they were called Sunday concerts. You couldn't do music. If you, if you didn't have music, you can work a Sunday concert. So my father and his partner were doing this. And the dance team, these white tap dancers, show up. And they, my father said, what are you guys doing here? You need music. They said, we put something together. And they walked out on stage. And they did my father and his partner's act. <laughs> and, and my, Unbelievable. And my father's partner was a tough guy. So as they as they came off stage, he hit both of them, knocked them both down, <laughs> said to my father, come on, Jack, take a bow. It's our act. <laughs> 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 and then he went and collected the money. <laughs> Fantastic.
6: That was one of the and- things in working on the book with you is how many stories involve violence. Or someone saying, "How would you like me to shove this pistol so far up your ass?" Either you saying it to someone, <laughs> <lot> <laughs> or someone saying it to you. And I think it's a miracle that you're still around after all of the scrapes you had with unsavory characters.
5: Well, I said it to God, who was holding the gun to my head for the second time.
4: Oh, tell us! Was this to Dinah Washington?
5: Story. No, no,
4: no. That was creepy.
5: Yeah, the guy asked me, I just opened in the club, and I finished the show, and I went into the, there was a lounge that was a part of the club. And this guy is there, and he says, have a drink. And I said, no thanks, I don't drink. And he pulled out a gun, and he said, Ah. I said, have a drink. I said, I'll have a bottle of scotch. And everybody laughed, and then he's holding the gun to my head. And I said to me, do me a favor, take the gun and stick it up your ass. And he said, "Why? you're not afraid to die? I said, let me explain. I don't know if you can understand this concept. I don't know what it is to die. So that doesn't frighten me. What frightens me is waiting to die. While you're holding the gun on me, that scares me. So either shoot me or I'm walking away. And I t- walked away with my back to him, waiting wow. <laughs> to get shot in the back,
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. you know?
6: <laughs> oh, my God. And what was the thing wow. where you wanted to hear Dinah Washington records on the jukebox?
5: Oh, yeah, yeah. We were in a bar, and we loved Dinah Washington. So in those days, it was a nickel. For, I was about 19 or 18. And Lou and I put a dollar in the machine, to play like Dinah Washington over and over again, some wise guy sitting at the bar, and he gets tired of hearing it. He walks over and pulled the plug out. So I said, "Hey, what are you doing?" We put a dollar in, and we get into an argument. And me, by schmucky New York Lower East Side <laughs> tough guy, <laughs> says, him, you want to walk outside." He says, I don't have to walk outside. I know where you work. He said, I want to see how tough you are when I got a gun to your temple. Ta- You're on your knees and I'm holding the gun to your temple. Now, I don't know how, but a friend of my father's who was an ex-fighter who became a masseuse in Florida <laughs> shows a- up at the club. I don't know how he found out. He said he had a problem. I said, no, I never-. He said, don't be a wise guy. I heard a guy threatened you with a gun. So I said, yeah. He said, you know where he hangs out? I said, yeah, across the street. So he said, let's go. We walk across to the hotel. He's playing cards, this guy. I remember his name was Blackie, and he was from Philadelphia. And the guy with me, the fighter, says, you, I want to talk to you. He says, I'm playing cards. He said, I don't give a shit what you're doing. I want to talk to you now. So he gets up, he walks into the lobby. He says, I hear you this kid with a gun. He said, I was only teasing, I was kidding him. He said, okay, let me explain something to you. From now on, your life's work is to make sure that this kid doesn't get hurt. If he so much as gets a scratch, I'll come looking for you, and I suggest you have your gun. Okay. And he says, and I know something. I think if the kid fights you, he beats you. And I said, Yeah, I'll fight him. And he said to me, Shut the fuck up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Quit while you're ahead.
5: <laughs> and
4: didn't someone at one point take out a gun and give it
5: to you? Oh, well, oh, that was in the, in the. Yeah, that was in, in uh, Youngstown. He didn't give it to me, he opened the drawer. They, they had pulled guns on me, and they took me into the boss's office. And then they put the guns away. There was two of them. And they opened the drawer in front of me, and it was a 38 Special. And he said to me, you know what that is? And from my neighborhood, I knew what those were. So I said, yeah, it's a 38 Special, and I picked it up. He said, do you know how to use one? I said, I'm not sure. I think I squeezed the trigger a bullet comes out here and hits you right in the chest. And I saw the blood drain (laughs) from his face. The other guy was trying to open the door to get out. And I said, take your hand off the doorknob or I'll put a bullet in your ass. Now I got the... (laughs) Now I become Jimmy Cagney. (laughs) I got a gun. So I say to the two of them, put your hands on your heads. So they both are standing with their hands on their heads, and now I don't know what to do with them.
2: <laughs>
5: I'm stuck with two guys, and luckily luckily the boss came in. His name was Shaky Naples.
4: Shaky Naples. jeez. Oh, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a real person. Yeah. Shaky Naples. Real, sounds like a cartoon well, the, gangster.
5: His real name was Santino, but okay. they called him Shaky. <laughs> So Uh he walks in, and he sees me holding the gun on them with the hands on their heads. He said, (laughs) what's going on? I said, this (laughs) jerk-off is putting a gun in my face every day, and now he knows what it feels like to have someone point a gun at him. So he says to the guy, you pointed a gun at the kid. He said, yeah, whack in the face. And he says, from now on, the both of you, you pick him up at lunchtime at his hotel. You take him to lunch and you take him to dinner. I said, No, no, it's okay. I don't. Do-. He said, yeah. no, they're <laughs> gonna take it, and I had to spend a week or two weeks with these morons having lunch and dinner.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff, Howard. And and I heard another story. Your father and his friend. We're talk- it was on the Jewish holidays, so the
5: oh oh, 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 it was Yom Kippur. Yeah. Yeah. And he was with the guy named Kid Dropper.
0: <laughs> Kid Dropper. <laughs> yeah,
5: because he would punch a horse and knock it down.
0: Jesus. <laughs>
5: so they called him Kid Dropper. And the other guy was a light heavyweight amateur fighter and my father. And... It was Yom Kippur, and the old Jews were walking to the river. And a horse and buggy pulled up, and four Irish guys jumped off and started pulling the payas, you know, and taking their hats away from the old Jews. So my father and his friends turned the buggy over, pulled the spokes out, and beat the shit out of these guys with the spokes from the wheels
0: insane. Oh man. Insane Isn't that stuff. a
6: didn't he have a childhood just out of a Norman Rockwell painting? <laughs> he really did. It's
0: idyllic. Un-
4: unbelievable. Un- unbelievable.
0: There's plenty of more stories like that in the book, but in the interest of time, Howard, tell us a little bit about Lucy and Desi.
5: Well, uh I, I when I auditioned, I my my wife at the time got the job, then I auditioned and I got it. We were paid. For the
0: Desilu Workshop.
5: It was called the Desilu Workshop. There were 20. Yeah,
0: which our friend Robert Osborne was in. Bob Osborne Gil. was in... Oh. Bob yeah. Osborne. He... Yeah. That, oh, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. In fact, but Howard
5: you... worked with him.
4: Yeah. Lucy used to like to train them.
5: Yes. To... She didn't like me, Lucy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tell us why. I was
5: the only and... one. I don't know. But she didn't like me, and she was... Uh, 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 but she put me in a sketch she would always tell me where the joke was, you know, that's a joke. I said, I know that, Lucy. And she'd say to me, I want you to count when you have a joke, I want you to count to three and then say the next line. And I said, Lucy, what if the laugh lasts for six? What do we do then? You know? So she was annoyed with me because I said it's not television. You can't guarantee how uh, you know how much space there is and what you can fill it with. I said sure. you know, so I did a sketch with Carol Cook that was really wonderful. It was called Upper Birth. It's two low lifes. And Bob Osborne uh, it, uh, played... Um,
6: like an Edward Murrow? Uh,
5: yes, Edward Murrow, and he, uh, he he interviewed us. I see. And we're two beer drinkers and, you know, just two lowlifes.
6: But what were you saying about... You were talking about how Desi was a problem solver. I learned a lot about Desi Arnaz, because people don't tend to talk much about him.
5: Desi was brilliant. And he could straighten things out immediately. I remember there was a sketch that wasn't working well, and Lucy had asked him to come and look at it. And he went, okay, don't do the phone bit. Forget about going to the door. Do this, do this, boom, boom, boom. And the sketch came together, you know? And he was able to do that. And then Lucy wanted, we did a Christmas show, and Lucy wanted to uh, say goodnight to each kid. So she said to the cinematographer, I'd like to have all the kids lined up at the end of the show, and I want to walk by and say each their names and say goodnight. And he said, well, Lucy, they're all different heights. The camera's going to go up and down. So she's now pouting. She's doing her uh, Jackie Cooper, you know, <laughs> lip out.
2: <laughs> oh, <Jackie Cooper>. geez. <laughs>
5: <laughs> and so Desi appears and he says Lucy what's wrong she said I wanted to do this thing with the kids and then you know say goodnight to all of them but they said because they're different heights they'd have to move the camera up and down he said what are you kidding me get a bunch of apple boxes make them all the same size and that's it and he said to the cinematographer what do I pay you for
0: <laughs> hmm. he, he was a problem solver
4: uh, Now here was a creepy story When you were working on the uh, Red Fox show Yes And you used to have a girl Like a page or something right. To bring him whatever yeah, my PA
5: whatever. My PA
4: Yes And tell us what happened there With this poor girl if She
5: would give I would give him a note And I'd ask her to bring the note to him and every time she went to his dressing room, he was nude, and loaded on coke, and he would, <laughs> and he would grab for her, you know. And oh, she look, would, let
6: him among you who is without
0: sin cast the first <laughs> stone. <laughs> and, Gilbert's nude and and snorting coke yeah, now, but and, he's not black. Yeah,
5: well, what? Ha- and she? Oh, go ahead. Well, she finally came to me after the second time, and she was raising a child on her own. And she said, I can't do this, I have to quit, because I'm not gonna go through this, fighting my way out of his dressing room. And I was really pissed at him for doing that. So we didn't get along very well, Red and I. And he went to the producers, and they called me to the office and said, Red says you don't respect him. And I said, that's the first time he's been right all week.
0: Hmm. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. We heard a lot of stuff like that about Red Fox. Tell, one, one more thing about Lucy that, that, that Steve reminded me of uh, in an email that he sent me. You you respected her as a, as a clown, as a physical comic. But, yeah. but beyond that, you didn't really think she had a sense of humor. She
5: didn't. She had no wit. And I spoke to Carol <laughs> Cook about it, who was her best friend, who lived with her, lived in her house. And I said, you know, I don't think Lucy had a sense of humor. She said, you're right. She had no, oh. you said a joke, she never got it. Right. But as a clown. <laughs> <laughs> I
6: love that. But Groucho had the, Groucho had the same observation once. It was I remember one lunch where Hal Cantor came to lunch and Hal had been working with Lucy on something. And Groucho said, you know, she's not a humorous person. And uh it was like, well you know, here she was, the queen of comedy. How can you say that?" And he made the same point that she didn't get
3: the joke she didn't she yeah. wasn't a witty person, but she could play comedy brilliantly,
5: yeah, physical comedy interesting, right. yeah,
0: so interesting what what's the story <laughs> yeah. about Jules Podell at the copa uh uh, running a foul or the, the other way around of uh, of Ricky Lane and Velvill the ventriloquist.
5: Oh uh, my god. Who Paul <laughs> Schaefer two. has brought up on this show. Ricky oh. Lane and Velvill were uh, uh, at the Copa and they were backstage which was the kitchen and they're waiting to go on and they got bored. So Ricky decided to have the dummy you know, uh, interact with the waiters. So he says, "You, you, yeah, the little fat guy with the bald head." Uh, he said, "Why don't you put some food on a plate and bring it out there? The people are hungry, you moron!" And yeah, you, the tall guy with the glasses, get your thumb out of the soup before you bring it out there. And in walks Padell, the owner, and he says, "What's going on here?" The legendary the Jules says, Podell. Yes. And the dummy says to him, hey, tough guy, mind your own business. With this, he backhands the dummy. <laughs> the dummy's head goes flying off. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's rolling on the floor. He follows it. It hits a wall and stops. He leans over and says to the head, you talk to me like that again and I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: which is not
6: which kind of dovetails into your story about Waylon Flowers and Madam
5: oh yeah I was doing I was doing a show called Madam with Waylon Flowers and Waylon would always oh yeah
0: you were directing
5: yeah and Waylon would always have Madam talk answer questions. I'd I'd talk to Waylon and say, Waylon, I need you to do this and this and he And Madam would answer. So And I would never look at Madam. I would lock eyes with Waylon. So he said to me one day, why don't you talk to Madam? I said, because she's a fucking dummy. That's why.
6: (laughs) And then there wasn't a teleprompter? The teleprompter?
5: Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) One day, Waylon is, she's doing um, Julia Childs. So she's at the counter, and she's stuffing the chicken, and Waylon is below with a little monitor and the script. And I say to the camera operator, widen the shot. He widens the shot, and I see a kid there with cue cards for Madam. <laughs> he's, he's holding cue cards for the dummy.
2: <laughs> Jeez.
4: And, and on Mork and Mindy, on Mork and Mindy, Robin Williams worshipped yeah. Jonathan Winters. Yes. And he brought him on the show, and that was kind of awkward.
0: Some great Mork and Mindy stories in the yeah. book.
4: Like, I think Jonathan Winters resented... He liked being he did working somewhat. on the show, but he resented that. Yeah, that he, he, uh, Robin was getting all of the credit, all of the adulation.
5: Yeah, he he kind of resented the fact that Robin had surpassed him. You know, and Robin was a great actor, and as a you know, and the reality was, Johnny was Ohio. Every character he did was Ohio. Robin was the world. You know, he was just... And uh, I felt that he did somehow resent Robin a little bit.
4: And, and Robin, that was when Robin was going totally nutty with uh, drinking and
0: drugs. Well, didn't he refuse to say the catchphrases? at a certain point he he didn't want to say Shazbot or Nanu, Nanu or any of that shit anymore. He wouldn't
5: say yeah, he wouldn't say them. and i I said to him, well, just why don't you just say him when you're angry? That would give you an excuse or just say him to uh, uh, to Pam, you know, then that would make sense. And but I couldn't get anybody, everybody was afraid of him. And, and, and Pam said to me that you were the only one he would listen to, and I said, "Why?" She said, "Because you weren't intimidated by him," and so I was able to talk to him. But nobody would join me, you know. When I when I try to get him to say "nanu nanu," I said, "Just say it to Pam," because that's personal, you know. And I would go to Gary. I went to uh, Bruce Johnson, who was the exec. None of them would join in. No. Interesting. Yeah.
4: And, and he was getting out of control. He was hot
5: to, because of all the craziness. Well, because of the coke and the drinking. But I, I had him. I controlled him. I, I, he somehow respected me, and he was afraid I would leave the show. Because I remember once saying to him, oh. I remember saying to him once, you know, you're working at 75%. The audience doesn't know it, but I do. And consequently, the show becomes mediocre, and my work becomes mediocre. So if you don't give me 100%, I'm out of here. And he said, no, no, Papa. No, Papa. I'll be good. I'll be good. He was like a child. You know, he was a, a delightful child. And the most generous human being I've ever met,
0: that's a big loss. It's a great a, a, oh, it a great talent. Gilbert, you got to know Robin a little bit.
4: Uh, yeah, yeah, i I remember I was about to go on at the improv, and he was big for Mark and Mindy, and he stepped in. So immediately the club said, "You know, forget Gilbert. get Robin up there right now." And Robin said to them, I have some people here to see me, but I'd like them to see Gilbert first. Wow. Yeah. High praise. And he let me go on ahead of him.
5: Wow. So sweet. Yeah, that was who he was. So sweet. We
4: will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, but first a word from our sponsor.
0: We would be remiss uh, if we didn't ask you one thing at least about Broadway Danny Rose.
5: Because the the
0: idea for this show came a little bit from the idea of a bunch of guys sitting around talking, in in your case, in the Carnegie. But how did it all come together?
5: Well, I I, I got a call. You you had
0: history with Woody, obviously.
5: Yes, but uh, this is so weird. I get a call from Woody's office. Mr. Allen would like you to do his movie. I said, what's the name of the movie? I'm sorry, but I can't reveal that. I said, well, uh, can I see some pages? I'm sorry, but we can't do that. So she said, do do you want to do it? I said, okay. (laughs) So I I get on a plane, and I'm seated next to uh, Sandy Barron, who turns to me and says, you know, I'm going to New York to do Woody Allen's movie. So I don't say a word. <laughs> and we get to New York. <laughs> we get to New York. We we They have us up at the Essex Hotel. In the morning, a, a, a car comes for us, takes us two blocks to the Carnegie, and we both walk in, and Sandy's looking at me like, what are you doing here? You know? <laughs> and... Uh, We just sat around a table, but the beauty of it was we stayed at a hotel up the street uh, and we were sent lox and bagels and cream cheese and everything you can imagine. And all the comics that knew we were in town came to visit us. So we were telling stories and laughing, and then they said, we need you on stage, and we walked a block and a half to the Carnegie so we had already prepared by telling all the stories and all. We were just really up, and then Woody, we're talking, and Woody tried to get our attention, you know. And everybody turned on him and said, "Woody, please, we're talking here."
0: <laughs> 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 and was was Luke, when when uh, when Lucanova leaves Danny Rose? Was that loosely based or not so loosely based? On Harry Belafonte leaving Jack Rollins?
5: Most probably because. Wow. uh, Who
0: was Woody's manager and your manager.
5: Yes. And And, well, Harry.
0: And he's in the scene too, Jack Rollins, of course. He's in the Carnegie scene. uh, Yeah.
5: Rollins was the best. I mean, there was no better. He and Charlie Jaffe were the best managers in the business, I thought. And uh, well, he was. He went on the road with Harry. They st- he stayed in the black hotels with Harry in those days. They shared a room. He would bring boxes of food to Harry's family. And Harry went to a psychiatrist, a woman, who told him to leave Jack and ha- sign with a husband who was a lawyer. And Harry left him wow. and broke his heart. Really broke his heart.
4: I heard Jack Rollins was the one who came up with the whole idea of Harry doing Calypso. Yes,
5: yes. Because Harry was singing jazz. He was working in jazz clubs and singing jazz. And, And Jack said to him, you're from the islands, why don't we do Calypso? And came up with the idea of the outfit and the songs. And Jack wrote one of the songs on the album.
0: Wow! Yeah, and and you are now the last surviving cast member from the from those Carnegie Deli wraparound scenes.
5: Uh, well, Woody's around.
0: Uh, no, no I, mean <laughs> the, the, <laughs> I mean the I mean the I mean the actors in the scene. Jack's gone. Will's gone. Corbett Will, Monica's Will gone. sandy Jordan's right. gone.
5: Morty Gunty. Will
0: Jordan, we had Will Jordan yeah, here. Yeah,
5: Jackie Jackie Gale.
0: Jackie Gale is gone. Sandy
5: Bowen, you're right, they're all gone.
0: You're the last of the Mohicans, That's my friend. Right.
5: Last man, Steve. How
0: did you meet Woody and be and, and become friends? Woody, uh, no, I mean, uh, Steve. I'm yes. asking Steve. How did how I meet was... Woody? Yeah, yeah.
6: I met Woody through Cavit. Uh, uh, I was living in New York, writing for Dick Cavett at HBO, and I was a lifelong Woody fan, but I was afraid to meet him because I was afraid I would have nothing that would be remotely of interest to him, and maybe it's best to admire him from a distance. So Dick Cavett called me one day and he said, I noticed that Woody is shooting his new film down the street. So I thought if you came over, we could just sort of happen on him and then you could meet him. And I said, he's not going to mind. And he said, oh, I didn't say that. He may very well say, really, Dickie, I wish you hadn't hitting the teeth, <laughs> So I thought, well, that's great. I was already nervous, and now he's saying there's no guarantees that come with this. But I took the Crosstown bus over to Cavett's place, and we walked in, and they were shooting a scene from a movie that would eventually be called Hannah and Her Sisters. And it was the scene uh, where uh, a flashback scene with Woody and Mia going to see a doctor where they learn that they can't have children. And... Cavett waved me forward from down the hall, and I joined them. And he knew Woody knew about me because Woody, because uh, Cavett would tell him about this guy he knew that worked for Groucho. And after Groucho died in '77, and I thought uh, Cavett would lose touch with me because I wasn't a pipeline into the Marx household anymore. Cavett called me from New York and said, listen, I hope just because Groucho's gone, we're not going to lose touch. And by the way, I hope you don't mind, but I've shown some of your letters to Woody, and he says they're very well written. So I had to empty the urine out of my shoes at that point. (laughs) (laughs) But the the initial meeting with Woody was, was memorable for how unmemorable the conversation was. It was just four people talking fairly comfortably Amongst themselves. and uh, and I and uh, then when I moved back to LA, we started a correspondence, Woody and I, uh, that's now pretty, I, I don't know, I might have like sixty five or seventy letters from him spanning decades. And uh, he's always been very supportive of me. He's been a real mensch, and uh, he was crazy about raised eyebrows my years inside Groucho's house. And he loves. Uh, the Howard book that I co-wrote with Mr. Storm, um, matter of fact, we we had sent him the manuscript so we could get this wonderful blurb for the back of the book. And then once the book itself was printed, we sent him a copy because we figured, you know, it's the least we could do and it's got pictures and all that stuff. And I got a letter from him last week and he said... Thanks for the book. I really look forward to reading it again because it's so damn entertaining. You two guys really aced this one. Oh, that's nice. Wow, that's nice. Can we put that on the back of the book too? You know, (laughs) that's nice.
0: Now, now, Howard, you're 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 also a Marx Brothers fan. Did you ever see the Marx Brothers live, by the way, and working out
5: material? No, I would have loved to have, but I yeah, I never did. No.
0: Do you, do you worry, uh, uh, Steve? Do you do you, as as Woody so art, uh, articulately says in radio days, that the voices get dimmer and dimmer with each passing year? Do you do you worry that 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 people are gonna forget them?
6: Well, yeah, and I'm the reminded that future generations of,
0: won't won't I, appreciate them the way we do.
6: Well, they don't. I mean, there's many times when I'll tell people who I worked for, and they have a look on their face as if I were speaking Swahili. They cannot place the Marx Brothers or Groucho, and I have to kind of rewind and say, "Well, they were this comedy team, and they were in the third, in the 30s, and the 40- and a, you know, a, and n- nothing's ever as funny until you explain it to them, and then of course <laughs> yeah. peals of laughter." See, that still
0: shocks me. Well, it, but that, then that, it becomes.
6: People don't know. But then it becomes. Every now and again, someone will say. Uh, my my nine-year-old granddaughter was watching Monkey Business, and she thought Harpo was funny. And, it, and, it, and it's like, okay, then there is still hope that some future generations will appreciate them. And it's weird because when I was working for Groucho, all of his peers, all the writers and stuff, saw me as this young whippersnapper because I was like 20 years old. And they thought it was kind of cool that I knew all about them and the films they had written and all those comedy acts and stuff, and we weren't all just pot-smoking rock-and-roll hippies. And now I've become one of those people whose, whose heart's cockles are warmed when they hear that there are younger people that appreciate the Marx Brothers and, and uh, old movies. And, you know, at least we have TCM and... Uh, Oh, sure. Blu-ray and things like that. But uh, I've gotten past being shocked when people don't know who certifiably legendary people are that just don't register at all
0: on their radar. Fred Astaire and... uh, well, we're trying our damnedest here to keep to keep it alive. Sure. There's a, there's a million great stories uh, in in the book, uh, Howard, that we're not going to get to this time. There's their pig meat Markham story, oh, Richard yeah. Pryor story, <laughs> Jackie Leonard, uh, your relationship with the late great Valerie Harper, and by the way, and people will have to get the book uh, to read about the stand that you took, the brave thing that you did, that the for Valerie and for the truth he was that actually wound up for her, his courage. Yeah, blackballing you and hurting your own career but I, but I wanted to wrap up uh, uh, with this and that was you getting to perform on the Merv Griffin show years later with your own dad yeah Oh. and ha- how did that happen and what was it
5: like well I suggested to Merv I said you know it might be interesting to, two ge- to do two generations of comedy and bring my father on and we'll do a burlesque sketch together I'll do straight form and Merv loved the idea so we did it, we did about three or four of them. And the first time we did it, my father hadn't worked, he was 70, he hadn't worked in 15 years as a performer, and and he'd never been on television. He walked on like he owned it. I mean, I I was in shock because I was worried that he would get thrown by the cameras and everything. He was, uh, you know, he was very comfortable and the piece went great. We did 18 minutes.
6: Wow. Try doing that on a talk show now. Yeah. Wow.
5: What did you do? What was the bit? We did a, a bit called Joe the Bartender. And getting into the bit, we did a quick little piece about where he says, you know, I'm an inventor. I said, well, what have you invented? He said, I invented a wristwatch. I said, the watch, that was invented years ago. He said, I know, but my watch is very different. I said, what's what different about your watch? He said, my wife has, watch has no face, no works, no handles. I said, well, how do you tell the time? You said you asked somebody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the book is wonderful. By the way, Howard, I did a little research, and you did a lot of Merv Griffin appearances as a solo between sixty-five and sixty-seven. Uh, yeah, you were you were on with Tody Fields, Xavier Cugat, and Charo. Ke- another Kenan Winn, uh, another your another old theme pal, show. Zero Mostel, Jackie Mason, Richard Pryor. Hugh Hefner, Eli Wallach, Phil Spector, and last but not least, Georgie Jessel. Yeah. <laughs> any any single memory of any of those Jesus. people? Yeah.
5: <laughs> George, <laughs> Georgie Jessel and I had an argument. He. <laughs> because it's already it good. was during the Vietnam War, uh. and he was pro the war, and he came on in a uniform, a soldier's uniform, and he started to talk up the war. And I said to him, you're sitting here in a toy uniform, you know. <laughs> I said, what, what, you know, what what are you doing? Why, why are you doing this? <laughs> you're, not, you're not going out there and getting shot. You're sitting here with a toy uniform on. And he was so pissed at me.
3: Who do you think you are coming here insulting the wonderful brave men and women in uniform? You sawed-off little... Well, I'm not going to say it in front of all these people.
0: There's a lot of people in the book. One of my, 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 one of my favorite parts of the book is all the people that you run afoul of, which we'll add Jessel. You have some problems with Buddy Hackett, some problems with Jackie Leonard, Richard Pryor, yeah. Lucy, we, Lucy we talked about, James Comack. People are going to have to get the book, or you'll come back another time and tell us more. But it's, it's chock full of great stories like that. Great. What the Sinatra story is 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 very touching. Um, say one uh, one thing about uh, uh, your friend Valerie Harper, who we just lost.
5: She was like Robin, the most generous human being I've ever known, and as an actor, she was the most generous person. You know, she would stay till two in the morning reading lines off stage for the actor in her scene and we'd say to her val why don't you go home we'll have someone else read it no 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 i'm in the scene with him he has to hear my voice you know it was just an amazing she was an amazing woman
0: yeah i met her a couple of times and she made it she made an impression on me yeah
5: she was very special
0: Another great loss. Well, gentlemen, what happened to Stoliar?
5: He left. I guess he has to pee. (laughs) I think he had to pee.
0: (laughs) Steve, (laughs) come back to say goodbye.
5: (laughs) I'll say goodbye on his behalf. I thank you both. It was great fun.
0: Okay. We're going to sign off. Hang on, Howard.
5: Okay.
4: This has been... (laughs) this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and we've been talking to a perfect guest for this show.
0: I and I, I use this cliche a lot on the show that we barely scratch the surface, but we barely scratch the surface, guys. So get get the book cuz you love this show, you love old Hollywood. This story is is uh, this book is just packed with them. And we we could keep going with you Howard. We've been talking
4: to Howard Storm and his book is The Perfect Storm.
0: The imperfect. From Henry, the imperfect Storm. The
4: Imperfect Storm. we were talking to Howard we were talking to Howard Storm and the book is The Imperfect Storm from Henry Street to Hollywood by Howard Storm and Steve Stoleio. Indeed. Howard,
0: you're my new hero.
5: <laughs> well,
3: thank you,
0: <laughs> and our listeners are going to love this. Okay, let's t- let's go out with a little dueling, Groucho's.
3: Well, what I don't uh, understand what you're asking of me. Do you want me to uh, challenge uh, Mr. Godfrey? It's not Arthur. Well,
1: where under- well, well, am I supposed to talk like you? Or are you supposed to talk like Exactly.
3: That? I can't figure out what this Santa Padre fellow is asking of us, but I, I <laughs> well, think it, it is probably it more gets, than either of us is capable of combined.
1: I, I don't know why he had to say that at, at that point in the show. <laughs> I was ready to just sign off.
3: I don't understand. We're <laughs> way you, overtime gentlemen. here, which means <laughs> Thank you,
0: for schlepping. you get paid. We'll talk to you time both.
3: and a half for the, the overtime that you're working here. <laughs> you
1: know, I could I could have ended the show an hour ago. I thought you did.
3: <laughs> I had to go take a leak at one point. <laughs>
1: I forgot how to, <laughs> to, to pull my penis out of my face. Go home. You've <laughs> peed enough.
3: <laughs>
0: thank you, guys. Oh, thank thank you. you. We love you. Oh.